She swallows, turns her face up to the sky, takes a big breath. It's a proud, defensive posture. Only the blackbird overhead can see how thin her hair is. By the time the second thud came, she appeared almost safe. Looking back now, it is this moment in which it seemed crisis had been averted that was the crucial one. I stood in her front room looking through the glass door, the drink still in my hand. I could have walked five yards, slid the door open and brought her inside. Or if she wouldn't be reasoned with, taking me for some troublemaking stranger, I could have reached for one of the little orange triangles dangling from pool cords. One of those, or that emergency button on the wall. A forty-one-year-old man can lunge for a triangle or a button without breaking a sweat. For an instant, I could have done any of these things. I linger there, in that still moment, because it is the last time I really had any options. How did I even get there, in a position to watch her suffer? Minutes before it happened, I was in the kitchen. I was clinking ice into a glass. She walked in and took her gardening gloves from a drawer labelled Garden Things, but was oblivious to me downing two glasses of butterscotch schnapps, the only drink I could find, and swallowing three pink pills. Since the dementia set in, she was oblivious to most things. She took her gloves into the front room. I poured a final schnapps, put the bottle back, and started looking for a snack. There was nothing useful to be found. You could tell that she had built a life for herself in the post-war years, the remedies cupboard was packed with milk of magnesia, Vicks vapor rub, thin and salts, friar's balsam, germaline. There was a section of the fridge labelled rationed, stuffed full of butter, lard, margarine, cheese, eggs. A little storeroom off the hallway, labelled storeroom, housed precarious columns of tinned goods, fish, tomatoes, meat, soup, vegetables, treacle. Alongside the tins, sugar, castor, icing, demerara, flour, plain, pastry, self-raising, lentils, pasta, rice. Then there were the latticed jars of fruit preserve, the boxes of Brayburns and Bramleys, the bottles of squash. My mother had been acquainted with shortage, and she didn't forget it. As I settled down on the leather sofa with my drink, the smell of meals on wheels in the communal corridor drifted in. I remembered that I hadn't eaten all day. I was so anxious about leaving my place that morning, about facing the dangers that crowd the world outside my flat, I couldn't manage any breakfast. "'Why don't you let me do it?' I said. She was hobbling across the carpet in the direction of the glass door. "'Why don't you let me pull up the weeds if you're that bothered?' She didn't respond. Instead, apparently remembering something crucial, she took a sidestep toward the television set in the corner. It was a clunky old thing, a throwback to a time when pictures didn't matter so much. She steadied herself on one of its blunt corners, reached around the back and pulled out a shoebox. She placed the shoebox on top of the set, gave it a friendly pat, and made her way over to the patio. I said, "'What's in the box, Mum?' She slid the door open with a colossal effort, then paused for a long time, considered my question. 
Cold air riddled the room. Then she responded. I remember the exact words she used. In the time that has passed, they have echoed through my mind with greater and greater resonance. She said, The plan is to deliver it to Mr. Satoshi. Who's Mr. Satoshi? I said. And she said, Most of all, the package is for Mr. Satoshi, for when we get an address for him. Her voice was soft, but I heard each word quite distinctly. Then her grip on the door handle, suddenly fierce, as if someone unseen were dragging her outside, she said, And if you've got any influence around here, you'll see to it that the warden keeps off my back. She slid the door closed behind her, and I sank back into a clump of cushions. The gardening gloves lay dejected at my side.